true Christians sin. But what distinguishes true Christians and false Christians is true Christian sin, but they hate that sin. They don't want it in their life. They don't want to sin. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you actively pursuing holiness? What effects do your daily choices and actions make in your becoming more and more like Christ Jesus? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. And Tom has part seven for you of his current series, The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Last time we began to look at the difference between how false and true Christians view sin. A false Christian denies or downplays his sins, while a true Christian admits and confesses, pursues holiness, and trusts the work of Christ alone as his only solution. Not a life of perfection, but direction, walking in holiness, putting away all known sin. Those are the marks of the true Christian. Is that true of you, friend? Are you someone who hates sin and is willing to do whatever it takes to rid your life of it? Let's find out more now as we join our teacher on The Word Unleashed. I encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, as we continue to work our way through this letter. When I was at Grace to You for the 16 years that I served there, there were a number of occasions for my regular interaction with those who listened to the radio program. One of those interactions was over a five-year period from 1993 to 1998. It was one that stood out to me because for those five years, I corresponded with a man who was sitting on death row here in Texas. His name was Johnny Piles. Two weeks before his execution back in 1998, he wrote me this letter. I want to read not all of it, just a couple of excerpts. I believe this man came to genuine faith in Christ. I served in prison ministry when I was in college and early seminary, and and I had the chance to interact with a lot of people who claimed jailhouse conversions. Many of them were not legitimate. They got out and nothing had really changed, but this was a man I believe was truly changed, and you can tell it by the way he owns his own sin and guilt. Listen to what he wrote me. This is May 26, 1998. Dear Tom, I wanted to write and let you know that I have an execution date set for June 15th, two weeks after this letter. He went on to talk about the many people who had ministered to him, some living, some dead. He talked about the Puritans. He's thankful for the sovereignty of God, for Reformed theology. He goes on to say, we have a Bible study here on death row and I have had the opportunity to teach it a few times. And he said, I would ask for prayer for the Bible study that the Lord would bless it with a man who would teach sound doctrine. He goes on to ask me to pray as well for the mother of his victim. He killed a deputy sheriff while he was committing a burglary, and uh, he asked prayer for the deputy's mother. He's, he's convinced in his letter that, that she's harboring a great deal of hatred and bitterness toward him, And he says, pray that she will not find peace in my death, but that she will find it in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ our Lord. When I consider the effects of sin on others, I think of what my sin caused in her life. I can only thank our Lord and God for the forgiveness of our sins 
in Jesus Christ. I know that the consequences of my sin have not been removed. I don't like the idea of being executed, but I'm anticipating the event with great joy, for it is a date of departure with heaven as the destination. And there I will be in the very presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Love, Johnny. He finishes with a P.S. In heaven we will meet. In his last public statement on the day of his execution, Johnny expressed his deepest regret to the family of the man whom he'd killed. He asked their forgiveness, and he shared his faith in Jesus Christ. He finished that that public statement with a very interesting observation. He said this. He said, both, or neither, I should say, human nor divine justice can be satisfied without my death. Neither human nor divine justice can be satisfied except by my death. That is the spiritual point that we learn in the text we come to this morning in 1 John chapter 2, that divine justice can only be satisfied by either our death or the death of someone in our place. Just to remind you of the context of this letter, John wrote this letter to give us assurance that we're truly Christians, and in the letter as a whole, he presents three recurring tests of eternal life. And he does so in three movements. So these three tests come back in three movements, all three tests recurring each in each of those movements. We're studying the first movement that runs from chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 27. And in this first cycle, the first test is this. You can know that you are truly a Christian. You can know that you have eternal life because you now have a new relationship to sin. You can look at your life and you can evaluate the legitimacy of your profession of faith in Christ by your current relationship to sin. It ought to be different than before you came to know Jesus Christ. Now this test is based, as I've noted for you, on two fundamental biblical truths. The first is found in verse 5, and that is God's essential nature of holiness. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is perfectly holy, and there's not even a hint of sin with God. And that produces a second reality. When you truly come to know this God who is light, there is in the true believer, a new relationship to sin. That begins in chapter 1, verse 6, and runs down through chapter 2, verse 6. Now, the believer's new relationship to sin is shown in several ways. We've seen three of them so far. First of all, it's shown by the pattern of his life in verses 6 and 7. Is he walking as a pattern in darkness, that is, in sin? Or is he walking as a pattern in the light? Doesn't mean he's perfect, but what characterizes his life? More light or more dark? You can look at the pattern of a person's life and see if they have this new relationship to sin. Secondly, in verses 8 and 9, this new relationship to sin is shown by an admission of inherent sinfulness. We're not talking about acts of sin here, rather. We're talking about the, the willing admission that I am a sinner, and that's why I sin. 
Before Christ, it's the admission of what we studied together, what theologians call total depravity, that every part of my being has been affected by sin, and I can't operate without expressing that because I am inherently sinful. As David said, I was conceived in sin, and it was in sin that my mother gave birth to me, meaning I've just been a sinner since the beginning. When you come to Christ, you receive a new nature, but you still have your sinful flesh. And true believers admit that. They admit that sin is still an ever-present reality with them, but they don't tolerate it. Instead, verse 9, they confess that sin. So they, they admit that they're inherently sinful, and when they sin, they confess their sin, seeking God's forgiveness, and it's granted, verse 9. Their new relationship to sin is shown thirdly by an admission of actual sins. Now we're talking about actual acts or thoughts or words that are sinful. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1, and I'll just read verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 2, because this is where we're learning about the admission of our actual sins. You follow along as I read it. 1 John 1, 10. If we say that we have not sinned, that is, committed specific acts of sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, we started studying this last time we were in 1 John together. Let me just remind you that we discovered in chapter 1, verse 10, that a false Christian, that is, a person who says, yes, I'm a Christian, but really isn't, a false Christian denies or downplays his sins. And we learned at the beginning of chapter 2 that a true Christian, one who's genuinely been converted, and this is long, but we're breaking it apart into parts, so just stay with me. A true Christian admits and hates his sins, pursues holiness, and trusts the work of Christ alone as the only solution for his sins. That's the message of the first two verses of chapter 2. So, again, we're taking it apart, and so far we've considered this. He admits and hates his sins and pursues holiness. The false Christian denies he commits sins by redefining them. Well, it's not really sin. It's more like a weakness. It's a struggle. It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, we learn a true Christian hates his sins. He has the same desire for himself that John has for his readers. Notice what John writes. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John says, listen, don't misunderstand. The things I wrote in the end of the first chapter where I said, you're going to sin, and when you sin, confess it and seek God's forgiveness. He said, don't think I'm, I'm encouraging you to think lightly about your sin or to in some way become comfortable with sin. No, I don't want you to sin at all. That's John the Apostle. That's his desire for us. And if you're a true Christian, that's your desire as well. You see, true Christians sin. But what distinguishes true Christians and false Christians is true Christians sin, but they hate that sin. They don't want it in their life. They don't want to sin. Whereas false Christians 
are frankly pretty comfortable with many sins. Oh, they may want to get rid of one or two that sort of embarrass them or make them uncomfortable, but they're pretty comfortable with the rest of it. Not so with true Christians. They desire not to sin, to be holy. That's their goal. That's their mindset. That's their attitude. So a true Christian admits and hates sin and pursues holiness. Now, secondly, the true Christian trusts Christ and his work for his sins. This is the message in the middle of verse 1 through verse 2. He trusts Christ and his work for his sins. These, this verse and a half touch on two aspects of the work of Christ. When you sin, you should fall back on these realities about Christ. First of all, we trust in his intercession as our high priest. His intercession is our high priest. Notice verse 1, if anyone sins, and we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Literally, the Greek text says, if anyone sins, we are having an advocate. This is Christ's constant activity in heaven. He is an advocate. He's a friend who speaks up on our behalf. This refers, of course, as we noted, to Christ's work as our high priest, and the primary focus of his work as our high priest today is his intercession. Romans 8, 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, listen to this, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what exactly is Christ interceding on your behalf for? I noted these last time and I'm not going to develop them. I just want to remind you of them because we need to finish this thought together. So here's the nature of Jesus' intercession. Here's how he intercedes. He entered the true holy of holies and presented his perfect sacrifice on your behalf to the Father. He prays for the eventual salvation of all the elect. He defends us against all the charges that Satan brings. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for and supplies grace for us in our trials and temptations. He prays for our spiritual protection and our perseverance. You're going to make it into his presence because of the intercession of Jesus. He sanctifies or sets apart, makes holy our prayers, our worship, and all of our spiritual activities to make them acceptable to God. And he prays for the eventual glorification of all of his people. Not one of his people will fail to make it to glory. That's what he intercedes. Now, before we leave this point, and the reason I wanted to remind you of that is I want us to consider what does he argue? I mean, think about this. If you're Christ and you're our advocate in heaven, when we sin, what does he argue? He doesn't say, oh, they're not guilty. He can't say that because we are when we sin. So what does he argue? Let me give you the arguments of his intercession. Here's the basis of his arguing with the Father for our forgiveness. They're right here in this text. First of all, he argues his own relationship with God. Notice verse 1 says, if anyone sins, we are having an advocate with the Father. That same expression, with the Father, occurred back in chapter 1, verse 2. Our advocate enjoys an eternal relationship with God. That's the point. This preposition with here 
is not the normal Greek preposition for with. It literally means to or toward. It's used in John 1.1 to describe Christ. It's used in 1 John 1.2 to describe Christ. It has the idea of face-to-face. It means he has an intimate relationship with God. Well, there's a good starting point for his being our advocate, right? He's not like a stranger to God. He has an intimate relationship with God. He is God. He is one of the members of the Trinity and can appeal on our behalf. There's a great argument for intercession. There's a second argument that he presents, and that is our relationship with God. Not only is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is the Father of all believers. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. So Christ, our advocate, reminds the Father that we are no longer strangers. We're no longer His enemies, but we are in fact His adopted children. It's with the Father. John Stott writes, Once the sinner has been justified by God his judge, He has entered the family of God and becomes related to God as his father. If he should sin, he does not need another justification from the divine judge. He's a child of God. He needs his father's forgiveness. Listen, Christian, do you see how how big this is? When you sin and when you feel like you have no right to go back to God, remember that Christ has become our advocate and in Christ, God has become and always will be our Father. That's his argument. A third argument is Christ's salvation of us. Christ's salvation of us. Notice again verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. Of course, that's our Lord's human name. He became man. He became one of us, and therefore he understands us. But, But there's more here than that. Jesus, as you know, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. And Jesus was given this name by Gabriel, ultimately by God, through Gabriel. You remember when when Gabriel appeared to Mary at the Annunciation that I hope to study in a couple of weeks, he said to her, name the boy Jesus, but he doesn't explain why. But later, when he appears to Joseph, recorded in Matthew 1, he explains. He says, Joseph, call him Jesus. Here's Matthew 1.21. Call him Yahweh saves, for he, this boy, will save his people from their sins. This is what he can appeal to in the presence of God. Christ reminds the Father that he is the Savior, and that I am one of His, one of His people whom He came to save. There's a great argument for forgiveness. Number four, he he argues the plan of God. Again, verse one says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Now, I think most of you understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title It's Christos. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Hamashiach, or Messiah. He is the anointed one, is what it means. The one God anointed for this very purpose. In other words, he can say, God, this is your plan. You anointed me to accomplish this. 
I am the Christos, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one. Lloyd-Jones writes, comfort yourself in this thought. The advocate had been appointed by the judge. Let me read that again. Comfort yourselves in this thought. The advocate has been appointed by the judge. The father in his everlasting love has himself set his son apart and anointed him for this task. You see, God isn't reluctant to forgive you, Christian, and Christ is sort of trying to argue him into it. This was the Father's plan. This was his plan. And Christ was the anointed one to carry it out. That's why even John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Or you have 2 Corinthians five nineteen, God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. It's the plan of God. And when we sin, Christ can argue that he is the Messiah, the one God appointed to accomplish this purpose. Number five, he argues his own righteousness. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Of course, that's referring to the fact that Jesus lived here on this planet in a place you can still visit for 33 years. And for those 33 years, he never sinned. He never failed to love God perfectly. He never failed to love others as he loves himself. He never failed to obey God in one thought, one attitude, one word, or one act. 33 years. He is the righteous. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, why is this important? Well, think about it. When we sin, this one has the very thing we lack, the righteousness required to enter God's presence. And in justification which is the heart of the gospel, we are declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, if you've, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, it's not just a matter that your sins have been forgiven. They have been, but that's not all that's happened. That's only half the story. You, your sins were credited to Christ, and on the cross, Christ paid for those sins so that the debt is fully paid. But then God does something amazing. He takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he takes those 33 years of perfect obedience and he credits them to your account and forever treats you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect life. That's the gospel. He is the righteous. And he can argue that before the Father. Number six, he can argue the results of his sacrifice. This is the word propitiation. He himself, verse 2 says, is the propitiation for our sins. Christ reminds the Father when we sin and, and we're confessing that sin and Christ is interceding on our behalf, he reminds the Father that he himself died in that believing sinner's place, that he himself suffered the awful wrath of God that we deserved, and therefore there's none left for us. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
I don't want you to miss the fact that Christ intercedes for us. And we can be confident that the Father hears him because these are his arguments. This is what he argues before the Father. Now, what do you do with this, Christian? How do you handle what we've just learned together? Well, remember, it's when we sin. If anyone sins, and we do, and we come to confess those sins, what do you do with those arguments? Remind yourself that you have an advocate with the Father and that He is making these very arguments on your behalf. That's Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed with Part 7 of his series, The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Tom will have Part 8 next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. You know, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.